about this this week. When I was 20 years old, I was working for Coca-Cola, wasn't going to school. I had got connected with a pretty neat church. I was going to services on Wednesday and Sunday. I suppose that was that era, was teaching fifth and sixth grade on Saturday night. And frankly, I felt like I was doing better than I'd ever been doing as an adult. I was kind of getting connected with, with the Lord, getting connected in the text, and had some good kind of personal disciplines going on. Was meeting with Fred at this point, who, a guy who was a mentor to me every other, every other week, I think. Uh, also had met, Fred was kind of networking me with some other people my age, and so I had gone to a couple of these college and career age gatherings, which I wasn't a youth group kid growing up. I had no context for that. And so that was strange, but I was starting to meet people somewhere around my age. And in a few of those different instances, I, I bumped into this particular girl who I really wanted to ask out, but I was really terrified. And I feel like this was a, a Holy Spirit thing. I'm looking back on it. I suppose most claims like that are subjective, but I do feel like I had the spirit awareness of the sense that I was new enough in this whole network, and, and she was very connected, that much was clear. She worked at the church in the kids' ministry where I was volunteering. So I had this sense of, I can't, uh, because if, if I call and she goes, who are you, like, I'll never show my face there again. And even worse, if I go on a date or two and then that doesn't work out or she finds out I'm a weirdo, then especially, like, I'll, I'll just be done. And I, I just feel like it was this God thing where I had this sense of, like, that would just not be good. So I just didn't do it. Didn't ask. And then there was another one of these weird college and career things where we talked for a little bit. And, and again, it was like, okay, I want to call her. But I, again, I wasn't from this world. I didn't really know how it worked. And so what I started doing was just saying to God, more or less, like, hey, so... Lord, if, if I'm going to ask her, I've got to know that from you. And again, I was very new to this scene. I wasn't even sure what that would look like to know that. But I started doing this thing, and it's super creepy, but it was really helpful. <laughs> where where I'd, I'd go home for lunch, because I, I just drove to grocery stores and stocked shelves, and it was perfect for a type A, turn all the labels the exact same direction, those kinds of things. And so I could drive home for lunch. I was living in my sister's basement. She wasn't home during lunch, and I'd make myself lunch. And then on the refrigerator, uh, th this church, it was this mega church that, that I was going to that she was working at, and, it, and for Christmas that year, they'd given everybody there a Christmas card. I think it was at the Christmas Eve gathering, and in the Christmas card was a staff photo, and there's probably 40 or 50 people in this staff photo, but she was in the photo. So what I would do is I'd take the photo off the refrigerator, I'd lay it on the dining room table, I'd eat my peanut butter and jelly, <laughs> and I'd just stare at the picture and go, okay, Lord, like... I got to know. And it, I don't think attraction was the issue. It wasn't that. It was just this like, I knew I was going to blow my life up if this thing didn't work out. And that was, I think it was around a week. And that was also the age of phone books. Remember when they made those things called phone books? And, and she was in the phone book. And so I, I, this is the first time I learned what like 302 and a half means. And I, 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 sometimes my route at work would take me by her house. She lived downtown like on miles or something. I didn't peer in any windows, I promise, but I just <laughs> drive by and just, and I, I figured out that 302 and a half means there's a small house behind the house in the front, and I'd stare at the house and figure this thing out, and <laughs> super creepy, right? <laughs> it, fortunately, I did ask her out, and I think it's worked out better for me than it did for Teresa, but I was thinking about this week because that, that's kind of what, I, what I've been doing personally in Matthew, and for me, it's the design behind this series of, listen, COVID has been so crazy, and the political cycle, and, 
and the social unrest, and I don't know about you, but suddenly it just, it, it feels like we can almost find nothing to disagree or agree about. It's caught, there's just landmines everywhere, whether you're talking to fellow Christians or not, whether you're, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And so for me, what's been really cathartic for the last several months, and I'm only in chapter five myself of Matthew, but I've just been doing this very slow drive-by past Matthew and trying to invite myself to just consider Jesus like as if for the first time, which I realize is not technically possible. But, you know, I, I went to a, a grad school in a seminary that they prided themselves like there's not a party line and there's not a systematic theology class, that what they do is they just take the book and deal with the book. And I don't feel like I've ever done that with the Gospels before. We, 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 we tend to forget there's four Gospel accounts. There's the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John. And in the end, they're all saying the same thing. Jesus is Messiah, and that's good news for all of us. But, but specifically, they're all saying very different things within the nuances, within the details, within the author themselves. I mean, we'll, we'll look at, in fact, one of the things we won't talk about, but I highly recommend is, is look at why does Matthew include these four women in his genealogy, and what do we know about Matthew, and why might he have a, a certain uh, favor towards, towards people who are otherwise left on the margins? So every gospel writer does something differently. So what I've been doing and what I want to do in this series is drive by slowly and just see like who is Matthew telling us Jesus is and how might that be helpful to us to start putting life after COVID back together? And of course, the first question that comes up is what is with the genealogy? I mean, Nathan made that look easy. And yet, if you've never read the Bible before, like Matthew chapter 1 might do, be all the reasons why to, you will never read it again if you start there. What's missed is it's actually a very theologically packed thing. I, I, I kind of alluded to one of those. If it comes up in the book group, if you're in one, I highly recommend exploring it. We're going to do it a few weeks later because there's a thread that Matthew pulls through the whole thing. But, but one way to think about it is, is that Matthew was Jewish, and he was writing to a Jewish audience who was pretty skeptical about this Jesus. Uh, think of it this way. You, you know when you were younger and you'd start having dinner with somebody and then the, the old people there would start going like, oh, do you know Joe and do you know Betty and do you know, and there would be that thing that happens. You know that game? It happened last week. We were having dinner on, later on Easter and had a couple friends over and at one point in, in, in an effort to just create conversation, I said to one of my friends, I was like, hey, did you know my mom graduated from Billings West? She was there and my friend, I knew my friend had graduated from Billings West. I was like, did you know my mom graduated from Billings West? I'm just kind of trying to move the conversation and get people interacting and, and, and he goes, no way, what year? And she said the year, I won't say that, she probably wouldn't be appreciate me saying that. And he goes, no way, I graduated from Billings West that year. And the rest is history. Like it was an introvert's paradise because I just got to sit there for the rest of the dinner and just, because every once in a while they'd be like, well, did you know, and they do this name thing and then they're like, okay, we're not going to do it again. And then five minutes later, did you know, and they do, do this thing. I think that's what Matthew's doing. Or, or think of it this way. Those of you who are football fans, uh, see if you can grab this thread and then we'll do a non-football one. So Joe Namath, Johnny Unitas, Joe Montana, Dan Marino, John Elway, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Brett Favre, Trevor Lawrence. What did I just do there? Or, or try it this way. I, I can't do female vocalists very far, but I can get it started and then you can help. Like Janis Joplin, uh, Mariah Carey, Janet Jackson, Adele. Help me. Beyonce. Beyonce, okay. Lady Gaga. Katy Perry. Okay, now give me an up-and-comer. 
Olivia Rodriguez, that's impressive, and I have no idea who we're talking about anymore. <laughs> Part of it seems like what Matthew's doing is going, I understand you take pride in your heritage. And what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus is a part of that. Like, he's among them. He, he, he holds his own with Joe Montana and John Elway and Mariah Carey. Like, he's, he's from us. He's a part of us. In fact, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm not a wordsmith guy. I've not, I've not studied a lot of languages before. Uh, Tim Mackey, who I'm gonna, I, I've listened to, he, he actually put a thing on the mind map, which you can find in the back of the room or online or on the website. He actually did a series all the way through Matthew. I'm not using much of it, but one of the observations that, that he made, just going to Matthew chapter 1, it says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That word genealogy there, uh, if, if you read the Gospel of Matthew in Greek, would, would be the word Genesis, which maybe is interesting because you may or may not know that the first book of the Hebrew Bible or the first testament, whatever you prefer to call it, is, is the book of what? It's the book of Genesis. And, and what's the story of the book of Genesis? Well, we've been debating this, unfortunately, in weird ways for the last hundred years. There's a guy named John Walton who's a professor at, at Wheaton. I've been spending some time with him recently. And he makes this, what I think is this great, great picture. He talks about the difference between building a house and building a home. I mean, just think about that for a second. If I said to you, I'm building a house, you would say, you're crazy, right? I mean, whether I'm paying someone or like, if, if I say I'm building a house, you would know that we're talking about lumber and concrete and sheetrock and paint and decisions about hardware and sinks and roofing and windows and all of that stuff, right? How does that feel different to you than if I say, I'm trying to build a home? You've probably experienced this. Uh, the, the first time you moved into your first dorm room, it was a, it was a house, but, but was it a home? Or maybe you're someone that's moved in this last year and you're new to Helena and, and you have a house, but, but a home is, is a different matter, isn't it? Think about when you've moved. I was just talking to a friend this week who was saying uh, that someone who's been living with him recently, his daughter, she, she taught him the difference between having a, a house and, and having a home. There, there's something about that. Because a home, it's not about the structure and the two-by-fours and where did it come from. It's, it's about what? Well, it's about relationship, interaction. See, what John Walton says is if you read Genesis 1 and really Genesis as a whole in its original language, what you see is the authors aren't concerned with how was the house built. That doesn't mean that the house wasn't built at some point, but that's not the cultural stream that we're reading about. What they're talking about is how God made creation his home. And in fact, if you follow it closely, there's this strong parallel between the way ancient Near Eastern cultures talked about the construction of a temple and the way God talks about, or the way Genesis talks about, the construction of creation, or, or the building of a home, rather, um, within creation. So if you'll, if you'll just consider that, that the theme of Genesis is God coming to dwell with, and of course that thread goes all the way through, because then you've got this tabernacle, and this temple, and then the temple goes away, and there's these sacrifices, and then what do we do when we can't make them? If, if in fact, the Hebrew Bible is about God's desire to dwell with, then watch this. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. Again, I didn't know this before Tim Mackey in this whole series, but, but guess what the Greek word behind the word birth is? It's actually the word Genesis. 
So what is Matthew, and this is what I really want to get at and try to be consistent in with this series, what is Matthew saying to a Jewish audience about Jesus? If this, if this Jewish audience acts upon the premise that this is about a God who comes to dwell with us, and then he points out that God has done that through all these people, starting with Abraham, and then he says, then there was this guy named Jesus. What's he saying about Jesus? What are the claims that he's making about Jesus? And this is where you can look at other gospel writers. The gospel writer John says Jesus came and he, he pitched his tent among us. The word tabernacle is there. What, what? So, so my point just being, how did these ancient people understand the story? Well, that somehow Jesus was the, the culmination of a God who wants to be with us. I want to pick up again in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they had lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus. To which you go, why Jesus? What? And, and Matthew answers this question. For he will save his people from their sins. So what's the fundamental assumption that Matthew makes about the world that we live in? What's the fundamental assumption that, that this state, like Jesus' name, he will save his people from their sins? Uh, a couple weeks ago, we got to go or during the first part of spring break with some friends down to, well, actually, let me back up. After Christmas, uh, my family and I went down to St. George, Utah, it was awesome to do some writing. We just went for a few days. On the way back, I remember we were fueling up in Pocatello. And I remember pumping gas and thinking, man, that guy's car over there smells like antifreeze. Didn't really think much of it. Kind of finished the trip. Then, what, three months later, some friends in our family went down again, basically the same region, a little bit different direction. Again, we were coming back. I was in Pocatello. I was fueling up uh, our expedition. And as I was fueling it up in Pocatello, I thought, Boy, that guy's car smells like antifreeze. Now, I'm not a genius, uh, but I'm also not an imbecile. And I thought, uh-oh, maybe my basic assumptions about who smells like antifreeze are off. And so I got home, ran it over uh, to, to a guy that a friend of mine has introduced you to who I really trust, who's working on it. And he's like, yeah, Adam, you've got some kind of leak thing. And there was like a gallon of antifreeze where it shouldn't be. There's a basic assumption about the world that was way wrong. What's Matthew's? N.T. Wright points out that we, we live in a culture uh, that the basic assumption, the basic worldview assumption right now is that what we need is discovery. So many of our social and theological conversations, he would say, that the assumption is people need discovered. You need to find your true self. We're going to talk about this next Easter because he would say this is Gnosticism, which is something we won't get into this morning, but, but it's been an issue for the church for 2,000 years. This is Gnosticism at its best. It's all about secret, discovery of secret knowledge. Is that the assumption Matthew makes about life? So what N.T. Wright points out is the, the basic assumption is not discovery, it's rescue, it's redemption. That where the Jewish story runs counter to many other spiritual, religious, even modern cultural stories, is the assumption is there's something bigger than us that we need rescued from. We can call that sin, we can call that death, we can call that lots of things, but if you were with us for Easter last week, here's kind of the spoiler alert, it's how Matthew ends the story. We talked last week about when Jesus went to explain the cross, 
he used an ancient festival that was all about celebrating what? This day when God rescued the people of Israel from a leader they couldn't get themselves out from under. And Matthew is saying, hey, this Jesus, he's the rescuer. He's the one that came to get you out from underneath this thing you can't get yourself out from under. And for me, in my own kind of worldview, it's been a good reminder of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, my basic problem is not discovery, it's redemption. And that doesn't mean there's not times where there's discovery that's valuable, but my core worldview assumption about life is that there's forces bigger than myself that outside of the cross and the victory of Jesus and the resurrection, I'm stuck under their thumb. Matthew seems to be telling this story. He keeps going, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. To which you're going like, I thought you said his name was Jesus, so which one is it? What's his name? The answer is yes. Is his name Jesus, is his name Emmanuel? Yes. But notice again the connection to Genesis. What, what, what is this Jesus about? He's Emmanuel. What does that mean? A God who wants to be with us. I want to show you a few pieces of art from uh, a long time before our own. This first one is from 1411. I've been learning about some of this stuff. This one's called The Hospitality of Abraham. It was painted in 1411. I know it's, it, it's not really easy to see here. Uh, it's, if you're familiar with the text, and if not, that's okay, but this is painted from the story where the three angels come and pay Abraham a visit and he gives them, a, a, I think, a meal of lamb, ironically. Um, or not ironic, but fittingly. Uh, many, many people in the kind of the mystical and especially Eastern Orthodox way of seeing this see the Trinity in this moment. But notice something, and I guess my point here would be to say, what was Matthew's theme? What was he drawing out? And if, it, if we're seeing it, then we should expect that people before us saw it as well. Well, notice there's something going on there with these three beings, because do you notice they all have wings? And yet they also all have what? Walking sticks. Which is kind of paradoxical, isn't it? Or nonsensical? Why does something who can fly where it wants to go need walking sticks? And what was it that the ancients understood about this whole story? You would only need walking sticks if you're stooping yourself to a level that you don't necessarily have to be at. You only need walking sticks if what? This is about a god who dwells with. There's this idea called the, the mandorla. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I just learned this recently as well. It, it's some original language. It's the word for almond. Uh, we would call it, it's, it's the middle part of what we would call a Venn diagram. What I didn't know was that when you look at a lot of uh, icon paintings, especially from the ancient church, Jesus is almost, well, I won't say almost always, he's often depicted in front of a mandorla, this intersection. And I got three of them here. Go ahead, Anna, and just show that first one. See the mandorla there? I mean, you, you, we can get distracted by a style of art that maybe isn't one that we would utilize today, but go ahead to that next one. And another one. And then let's just go to that last one, and we'll, we'll just leave it there. What is it that these people are saying with the mandorla? It's the home. It's the intersection. That Matthew is trying to convey to his people, Jesus is a continuation, maybe the culmination. He's the epitome of a God who wants to dwell with. So what's his name? Is it Jesus? Is it Emmanuel? Yes. 
You know, here, here's the way I've been processing this because I think this Mandorla thing is such a powerful reminder and the invitation of Jesus is just this like a God who wants to be with. I, I don't know what the issues are for you that linger from COVID, whether it's loneliness or deep political social frustration or cynicism, whether you've got financial things going on or your business is in disarray or you're just flat mad and you're not even entirely sure why. Maybe you're someone who is really struggling with the way you make sense of church because you're disappointed by it or frustrated with it. You know, I've talked openly about my own struggles with anxiety for, for a long time. The last time I had a big bout, the, the, the mantra that I said to myself was, I just have to do things nervous. It's part of who I am. I can think back to when I played sports. I, nervousness was always a part of my deal. When I was an intern, when I first got this job at this church, I remember I, I taught in front of all these students at one point, and I worked for like the best youth pastor ever, so, so gifted, and he gave them evaluation sheets to evaluate me as I talked. As I, and, and I remember like half of them came back and said, stop being nervous. I was furious, like, oh, that's helpful. Yeah, just stop being nervous. <clears throat> what I'm starting to realize, though, is that there's things I can do. I mean, that's why I exercise, because it burns the stuff that makes me nervous and builds the stuff that makes me not. It's why I over-prepare. It, it, it's, there's things that I can do, but, but here's, here's the way I've been thinking about it, and maybe this would be helpful to you. The other invitation within it, I think, is that it's in those moments of weakness where a God who wants to be with us actually matters. It's much more difficult for me to, to dwell on Jesus, Emmanuel, a story that from the very beginning is about a God who wants to be with and then empowers through his spirit. It's easy for me to miss that when I'm not nervous, frankly, when I'm not weak, when I'm not outside of my element. So I don't know what it is for you, what it is you're struggling with, but, but maybe it's, it's not always a problem to be solved. I know we've got to kind of split the difference there or it's got to become a both and. But in an age where we, we, we just, we turn everything into a problem that has to instantly be solved, maybe there's some invitation in some of that. Like, whether it's your frustration with your business or your frustration with politics or your frustration with your marriage or or you're grieving something that's going on in one of your kids' life, maybe that's where we're reminded of the mandorla, of the, of the intersection of a God who, who claims not to be far but to be near. And as we'll get into next week, also a God who, who also is very strong in saying, like, my being with you doesn't mean that you don't suffer. Like, that seems to be the cross story, really, in a nutshell. So what's the invitation for you in this season to hear the ancient gospel writer Matthew saying, wait, before Jesus is anything else, he's the culmination of a God who wants to rescue you from something and yet a God who wants to be with you. And how might it help you to remind yourself the rescuing is more about sin and evil than it is at times about unpleasant circumstances? What's the invitation for you? And if you're brand new to Jesus, here, here's the great news is to, to begin that. I mean, it's, it doesn't, it's not some magic incantation. It's just saying to God, God, I'd love to receive the, the redemption and I'd love to live my life with you. And then my advice would be, you can do that and then make sure you form some relationships around people that are a step ahead of you so they can help you in, in, within that. But for the rest of us, 
What does it mean to just be reminded of the mandorla and a God who wants to be with? Let me pray, and then we're gonna give you a chance to take communion. We'll start right up here. Ushers will help us. God, Lord, thanks for Matthew. Uh, Thanks for the window through which he experienced you and saw you. Thanks, Lord, that that the story's really not that nuanced. Uh, You are a God who, for reasons that we can't necessarily explain and don't have to have this abiding desire to, to do life with us. And, and we kind of mess that story up more often than not, and you rescue us from that. God, I pray for whatever the, whatever the things in the room are, the, the anxieties, the sadnesses, the depressions, the, the frustrations, the anger, the financial crises, the relational struggles that You'd give us the wisdom and the relationships uh, to, to leverage those things as opportunities to be with. We love you. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.